Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello and welcome. Today's minicast is just me, Beckett. Susan is away. I'm going to go a little bit into everyday life in the Elizabethan era, since so much of what happened to and around you is based on what station of life you find yourself in, a class system, by the way, that everyone agreed had been ordained by God, that I'm going to cover this in three sections. Let's call this first one, The Poor. Let's start in the country, where things hadn't changed much since the Middle Ages until now. Once upon a time, your average peasant could scrape together a living by farming his own tiny piece of land. It was not a princely living by any means, but you could grow onions and beans and peas and keep a pig, kind of be your own man. But right before Elizabeth's accession, food shortages led to a process called land enclosure, um, larger, more efficient farm units were created, and so less people were needed to work on them. And not so big, you know, about four acres, but still, many families who had lived for generations in a thatched cottage on the same land found themselves turned out, homeless, and in no way able to support themselves. So now, large numbers of people were on the move in search of a better life. All of these unemployed people landing in towns big and small caused no end of alarm among the authorities. And they quickly categorized, quote, the poor into, at first, two categories. One, the deserving poor, and this is common sense, young children, the elderly, the sick, families thrown down by circumstance. These were supported by usually contributions from wealthier citizens of the parish as a whole. And number two, the undeserving poor, people who stole, robbed, yes, Beggars who could be whipped for existing, then forcibly transported back to the parish of their birth so those people could bear the burden of them. And for decades, lumped into this undeserving poor category were, quote, migrants who roamed the countryside looking for work. Vagabonds, as the criminals and the able-bodied unemployed were called for a while, were burned through the right ear to mark them and tossed in prison or sometimes even executed it was illegal to help a homeless person. You could be fined a pound. My goodness, uh, there's no sympathy at all. It took a decade or so for the genuine job seeker to be separated out from the bozos, um, and now they're called deserving unemployed. Woof, finally. And uh, we're kind of given work or at least some slack. So in 1572, there was a national poor tax. Um, Elizabeth said that this was society's responsibility to take care of the poor, uh, but it was still administered locally. And in 1576, towns were finally required to provide make work, even wages, to the deserving unemployed, maybe giving them raw material to be sold or else setting them to projects that the town could sell to provide for them. A laborer, if you were lucky enough to be one in the first place, earned about a groat a day. This is fourpence. Houses were windowless for the most part, uh, lest the rain come in, and a family of seven or eight in a one-room thatched cottage, no bigger than a backyard shed of today, was not all that uncommon. Inside was a black and white world. No colors in your house at all. I'm depressed already. And smoke from the fire typically just went straight up through the hole in the ceiling, which of course let in the rain. You ate cheese and eggs, which were called white meat, um, bread and ale, mostly. 
but a good forager could come up with quite a lot of edible things for a soup pot. I kind of went down a little rabbit hole looking at edible plants of the forest, but even if you could keep a pig, acorns were free, and selling the meat was often far more useful than eating it yourself. Same with cows. The rich wouldn't eat cheese, it grossed them out. More for me, I say. And the bread of the poor was far more nutritious than that white manchet bread that the rich ate, made of, you know, just the inside part of the wheat, just like now. Um, so the poor's bread was made of barley or rye or even peas or acorns if you were really poor. And often there would be a big kettle of pottage, kind of a stick-to-your-rib soup of oatmeal and scraps of meat and all those foraged vegetables inside of it. You had better not hunt anything, though. Small rodents might be okay, and I think you could eat songbirds if you could catch them, but hunting was reserved for the nobility. And if you were caught poaching, you were for the chop. Literally, they'd cut off a hand. A chicken cost about a whole day's wages, so you'd want to ration that for a special occasion. In this case, chicken was the other white meat. Everyone drank ale. It must be said, it was very low alcohol content. Everyone wasn't just staggering around all day. Just enough to make it safer to drink than water. And, not hoppy, it was flavored with things like ivy, which I didn't know was edible, mugwort, which evidently helps your digestion, that's probably good, or um, lupin. In addition to being my only Harry Potter reference, lupin, can I please say, now to all hipster chefs everywhere, get on the lupin bandwagon, it's this tall, awesomely beautiful flower, kind of like a huge hyacinth, with these sweet edible beans in it. I'm ordering some seeds right now. Seriously, look for lupin in a restaurant near you. I'm surprised they haven't seized on it already. Back to Elizabethan times, a word on the status of women. In this class, really, it was either marry or starve. Ironic, in a country ruled by an unmarried woman, the option of entering a convent, quite a secure livelihood and career for hundreds of years, is quite out of the question now. Your husband had full authority over you and your children, and other women will assume, if your husband beats you, that you drove him to it. There's not much solidarity here, ladies. And cruelty to children was normal to a point beyond where I can stand thinking about it. Most children lose one parent by the time they're 18. Most parents lose at least 50% of their children. Very grim. The flu was so rampant at the beginning of Elizabeth's reign that it proportionally wiped out more people than both the 1918 flu pandemic and World War I combined. The plague killed one-eighth of the population during the entirety of Elizabeth's reign, and our good doctors recommend just stop eating onions. So that helped. Otherwise, dudes came by and boarded up your whole household, and anyone still alive after six weeks was just welcome to come back out. That is a horrifying circumstance. Anyway, everyone trooped to church on Sundays. There was a fine if you didn't go. Um, it was your only real rest, and people would write you out anyway if you didn't go, so you might as well go. It was probably nice to see the neighbors. There were country dances to attend and parties when there was a harvest. A few mild amusements. If you had a couple of pennies and were in London, you could get the waterman to take you over to Southwark to see a play and eat some street food, also a penny. Probably a very dubious quality, but as you really don't get a lot to eat anyway, that was probably not a big deal. So let's just say you can reach some kind of equilibrium in your life. You've got the rhythm of life down, steady work, your wife's a good forager, not too many mouths to feed, because maybe you guessed what causes that. A nice day of rest on Sunday. Maybe a chicken in the pot. But 
One bad weather summer leads to a crop failure. Mass devastation begins in 1594, but try four bad years in a row. Tens of thousands of the poor starve to death. And finally, the queen and her advisors realize something concrete must be done. And in 1597, they passed the last of Elizabeth's poor laws, called an act for the relief of the poor, which was at last considered a nationwide civic duty to help those less fortunate Wherever the poor were, they were to receive assistance, a model that held in Britain for over 200 years. So, that takes care of the Elizabethan poor. Now let's move on to the middling sort of person. reached the middle ground. Time was that you were born low or you were born high and that was that for all but the very, very rarest of beings. But suddenly there was a lot of what I like to call bootstrapping. The concentration of population in villages and towns or London created openings for specialists in trade and thought and discovery and literature. There were playwrights and civil servants and publishers and explorers and that all important engine of financial growth, merchants. The idea of a, quote, wealthy merchant was not, now, ridiculous. The whole area of commerce had become this meritocracy. If you worked hard, you could actually change your fate. The middle class really ranged all the way from the yeoman farmer, for example, that was classified as a man that made up to six pounds a year profit off his land, all the way up to burgesses or citizens, really indistinguishable from some of the lower orders of the gentry. Wives of this class, especially at the lower end, were so very useful. What a lucky man to find a wife who could read and do sums, talk to customers. Wives often became so knowledgeable and respected in their trades that widows simply carried on after the death of their husbands. You could be quite upwardly mobile. William Shakespeare's father started out a glove maker and ended up the high bailiff or mayor of Stratford. That's quite a rise. Houses of the merchant class were the timber and plaster Tudor look you still see in modern houses today. You know the look. Um, bricks had become so inexpensive that chimneys were now a feature of almost every house. That's a big move forward in technology. But glass was still so expensive that these keep up with the Joneses folks did put glass in the front windows along the street where everyone could see. But sure enough, if you walked around the back, there would be plain old shutters. The walls inside the houses were paneled, and if you had a little more money, carved wood. Um, the floors were covered in rush matting. They were really obsessed with cleanliness toward the end, so that rush matting was replaced quite regularly. These houses were kind of sparsely furnished by our standards. Feather beds had come in, and carved wood bedsteads were so important as property that they were given to people, specifically in wills. All but the very lowest of the middle class would expect to hire at least two servants, a cook and a girl, to clean and help the cook out. Women servants earned a pound a year, so really that's no small expense when you're skating around 20 pounds a year. That's a huge portion of your income. In addition, you might be saddled, I have to say saddled, with one or more apprentices, usually male, 12 to 20-ish years old. They were obliged to serve you free labor for seven years, but you had to give them an education in your craft and food, and you had a lot of trouble, I think. Keeping apprentices in line seemed like a huge responsibility. 
Servants were expected to place their loyalty firmly with the family, above their own kin, but the favor was not returned. The master of the house pretty well expected sexual favors. Even if he didn't exercise the actual act, there was an awful lot of harassment. And if you got pregnant, you are out. The diary of Samuel Pepys, which is 50 years on from this, gives really a pretty good picture of middle-class life, including the above harassment, unfortunately. But I think it's worthwhile reading to see what happened with all the trends just beginning now, during Elizabeth's reign, how they ended up. There was definitely a whole class called The New Man, which really verged on rich. I'll post pictures of some of the more successful new men, wool merchants, exceptionally prone to leap up into wealthy, um, civil servants and lawyers, Honestly, some of them became way better off than the nobility at the end of this period. But let's go back, again, 50 years, and a couple stops downward to merchants that were just starting out. Your average merchant and his family lived behind and or above the store. The sons went off to the increasingly available public schools, though I feel so bad for these little dudes. School went from 6 a.m. through 4 or even sometimes 8 p.m., and it was common to get a thick ear or a sore hiney several times a day. Um, but, you know, the philosophy was, knowledge is the wing whereupon we ascend, so I guess that's the price you had to pay for onward and upward. A door of the shop might be fitted sideways to kind of pull down and become a counter, and baskets of wares all pulled out and hung up and around like really proto-visual merchandising. It must have been very exciting to walk down the street. It must be said that the town smelled very bad. Poo and pee of all kinds, the healthy smell of unwashed humans... Some of the messier businesses, like butchers or tanneries, and the fish. Queen Elizabeth had instituted a rule that everyone had to eat fish on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, mostly because the fishing fleet doubled as the Navy, etc. We talked about that in the Queen Elizabeth podcast. And the fish they ate, just all kinds. Herring, salmon, whiting, plaice, cod, pike, crab, oysters, mussels, cockles, and eel, which my husband loves, and I am here to tell you that eel, to me, tastes like you're licking the inside of an aquarium. Gross. I'll talk more about food in the next segment, so moving on to pastimes. Now that theater has gotten more respectable, a great night out for a group of the dudes might be dinner at the Mermaid Tavern, haunt of William Shakespeare and his posse, where the beer was only a half pence, and the atmosphere was charged with the danger of a room full of men in their 20s who all carried a dagger, sounds like fun, or onto a more respectable house where you might, if you were a man, again, get hold of a nice supper of a chicken and a quart of sack and some bread and a custard. Incidentally, you're eating with an eating knife and spoon. There are probably some two-tined big forks back in the kitchen to turn meat with, but none on the table. Uh, Poor men often cruised around, in fact, with wooden spoons stuck in their hats and wooden trencher plates and mugs at home. But the middle class expected nothing less than pewter dinnerware and preferably silver plates. So off to the theater where a third of the entire population of London gets to a show at least once a month, the middle-class patron would get some wine off the stalls outside and and maybe a cone of hazelnuts to munch on. It was a big party atmosphere outside. It was really more like the start of a rock concert than a movie theater. Lots of vendors around, people milling around, that excitement, some street performers, um, 2,000 people. And it was also called the pickpocket office. So watch your coins. A grimmer at least from my perspective, party atmosphere, was to be found at public executions. The same vendors would set up shop. 
I imagine the alewives made so much money on execution day. Hanging meant not a quick death by a broken neck, but a slow strangling to death. Uh, I cannot even think about drawing and quartering right now or pressing under a stone. I am too freaked out to be thinking about watching that while eating a sausage. But evidently, that wasn't a big deal. You might, for lighter entertainment, watch a, quote, scold, unquote, a woman who nags or has an opinion, get ducked half unconscious on a ducking stool. You could spit at a vagabond in the stocks, watch a whipping, or watch a thief get branded on the thumb, because if he could read, he got one chance. So he got branded on the thumb, and so that was his pass. And if you caught him again, and he'd already been branded then, punishment for him but you'd watch all this punishment and take note to toe the line which of course was the whole point of the exercise in the first place last and admittedly probably least a word on fashion the poor were frankly glad to be warm and covered up but the emerging middle class as they got wealthier aped the rich in as many ways as they could too many dishes of food on the table their women folk got idler and uh, excess in dress, the latter of which was galling to the upper crust. How were you supposed to tell who was who? Some of the laws were clear. If you had blue or red velvet on, you had better at least be a knight or married to one. Easy to check. But embroidery, taffeta, imported fur, those were restricted to people with incomes of X hundred pounds per year. Who had the time to investigate whether the wool merchant's wife was really authorized to wear green velvet? You can see where status climbers would push the envelope. Like the fake coach bag of Elizabethan times, it sent a false status symbol. But these ones cost real money, often causing great distress behind the scenes, exactly what the laws were designed to prevent. There is a horrible histories video about how confusing these laws were. I'll put a link to it on the show notes. As soon as I can, I'll get a Pinterest board up for this show and toss that up there, too. By the way, I'm well on my way to a board for each subject. Some are more challenging than others. So if you'd like to see the ones that are done, just head to Pinterest and search for the history chicks on pinners, and you'll find them. So that's it today for the middle class. Let us head next to the land of the rich and powerful. We come at last to those for whom price was no object. Elizabeth and her court were, of course, the most visible of these. And let's start in the lives of these privileged few on the frivolous subject of fashion. Elizabeth is known as an acquisitive clothes horse, but she liked to keep her hand out of her own purse. You know, presents were welcome, voluntary, <clears throat> but welcome to be received with great interest and great expectation on New Year's Day, Accession Day, and her birthday. Fashion moves quickly. Fashion dolls were issued and passed around so you could keep up with the expectations and, incidentally, simply pour money into that growing middle class. So that benefited a lot more people. During Mary I's reign, Queen Elizabeth took great care to be calm in her dress. Black and white, simple adornments, and man, did that evaporate over the years. Vibrant colors were the rule, and weird names for colors, like goose turd green, although we kind of know what color that is, dead Spaniard, which is a kind of tan, uh, incarnate, which is a certain kind of red, made from a dye called cochineal, which came all the way from Mexico and was very, very expensive. Purple, the most expensive of all, caused 30,000 whelks to sacrifice for one ounce of dye. Surely somebody ate those whelks, so don't feel too bad. Purple silk was reserved for royalty anyway and some of the upper aristocracy. 
So ladies, here is what you would put on every morning. First, your stockings and shoes. Seems weird, but mostly because you're not going to be able to bend over here in about 10 minutes. So then you put on your chemise, like kind of like a long, thin white nightdress, then a petticoat, quilted during the cold for warmth. Then the farthingale, which is like another long petticoat with these hoops of flexible willow in it as the foundation of your skirt. And then the corset. Suck it in. This is a long one, too. It's stiffened with wood and probably pushing really hard on your lower abdomen. Doesn't that sound fun? Then a bum roll, like a huge boppy pillow, to hold out the top of your skirt. Then you've got a partlet, kind of a sleeveless bodice, which covers the corset, and a kirtle, which is the main underskirt. Finally, the gown, probably encrusted with heavy embroidery and or jewels, and pulled back to show some of the underskirt. And then sleeves were separate things, and they were either tied on, sewn on, or pinned on, depending on what kind of help you had in the morning. At the beginning of Elizabeth's reign, you're still looking at a simple smocking of frothy white cloth at the neck, but by mid-reign, you have got six yards of linen folded onto a ruff around your whole head that was so heavy that starch alone couldn't hold it up. And so you wore this thin board around your neck to hold it up. No wonder no one's smiling in those pictures. Elizabeth demanded, quote, the feminine look, no bare arms and no bare legs. However, necklines became so low that at times you had full exposure. That's feminine, I guess. The Tudors on Showtime got hold of this look just a bit too early for ratings purposes, obviously. I can see why that's a good look for Showtime. There was a fashion for furs after an explorer named Chancellor established contact with, quote, the Tsar of Muscovy, Ivan the Terrible, amazingly, who incidentally proposed marriage to Queen Elizabeth in 1567. Rejected, like so many else. So how did you pee? Well, you'll notice if you simply stand still and let things descend, there's nothing to stop you. No drawers, which was probably for the best, since you couldn't bend anyway. Men got off easier in the weight of clothes department. Doublet and hose, tight jacket and a ruff, maybe a cape if it was cold. Seems a lot easier. The Puritans, of course, were furious at the expense and the show, and they thought that mirrors are the devil's bellow to blow up vanity. But remember, they don't like anything. On to houses. Queen Elizabeth's main residence, Hampton Court, cost her 4000 a year to maintain. Keep in mind, the average laborer is lucky to earn £5 a year. About two dozen times during her reign, Queen Elizabeth went on progress through her kingdom, which her advisors hated just on principle because they said there is nothing more disruptive than war. True, but it was necessary. It was PR. You have to have the propaganda of stability, of majesty. Queen Elizabeth showed herself to the common people so often that it was said that the acquaintance became almost personal. And that's really good. That was her goal. Also, from time to time, it was good to get this locust hoard away and let the local agriculture recover a little bit. And it paid to have people muck out this empty castle. And last but not least, it literally paid to get someone else to foot the bill once in a while. And so, once upon a time, for example, in 1577, they set off to pay a call on good old Lord North, a long parade of 2,400 horses, 800 wagons, the ladies riding in fantastically painted carriages brought back from Antwerp, of course, all the dudes are on horseback, not macho, to be in a girly old carriage, pennants flying, gorgeousness of clothing and vehicles, and sheer size. I can imagine everyone standing by the road with their mouths open 
as that whole train goes by. And here is what poor old Lord North is laying in at the end of the road there. Two cows, eight stags, 1,200 chickens, 2,500 pigeons, two cartloads of oysters, 2,500 gallons of beer, 100 pounds of sugar, two wagons of, quote, garden stuff, 63 gallons white wine, 378 gallons of claret, apples, cherries, plums, everything you read, by the way, says that upper-class Elizabethans didn't eat vegetables, but the recipes and the party lists kind of belie that. Many things we called vegetables, they called herbs, and they ate. Um, lettuce, spinach, strawberry leaves, and violets, purslane, and dittany. That's my second Harry Potter reference, and I didn't even need to do that. With most menus containing, quote, salads, S-A-L-L-E-T-S, there's lots of recipes for them. One of Elizabeth's favorites was onions, violets, and cucumbers in an oil and vinegar dressing. They also ate radishes and turnips quite often. Tomatoes did appear on the table, but mostly as a decoration. Everyone kind of regarded them as quite suspicioso, so... They did um, avoid peas and beans and cabbage, which caused, quote, furious vapors. Oh, yes, they do. There is a famous story that I want to think is true, that the Earl of Oxford let out a big juicy fart into a moment of silence at court and was so embarrassed that he bailed and went to live in the country for seven years. And when he came back, after all that time, Queen Elizabeth said delightedly, Oh, Oxford, I've forgotten that fart. Who knows if it's true? Back to Lord North and his expenditures, it could be financially ruinous to host the Queen. For two days of frivolity, Lord North was on the hook for 650 pounds, plus a big expensive thank you present to the Queen for coming. Seems unfair, but still, people strove to host her. Sometimes they even built whole castles just to lure her there. That is so crazy to me. I can't even believe it. It's desperation, is what it is. There was a famous etiquette book called Book of Nurture or School of Good Manners by Hugh Rhodes. And there's two admonitions to note here. There's many, but I'm just going to tell you the two that stuck out to me. If you spit, quickly step on it with your shoe so no one sees. And take your hat off when someone pees in front of you. So take note of that. I should mention, of course, that there is a group of rich people who were not, in fact, at court. Country gentry really ran daily life in the countryside. They were out and about, served as magistrates. They were the big fish in their smaller ponds. And Elizabeth called them the guardians of good order. This is where I'd live if I had to go back. Forget court and all the intrigues. I get enough of that at work. So, finally, let me just cover the pastimes of the rich during Elizabeth's reign. Dancing, of course. Now, if a lady wants to dance with you, it's rude to say no. There's gaillards, which were Elizabeth's favorites. Lots of vigorous activity. In fact, Elizabeth danced them to keep fit, even as she got quite old. And La Volta, made famous, of course, by the Kate Blanchett movies, which the Puritans called, quote, that filthy groping. Of course they did. And they've never seen figure skating. They'd be shocked. Also, country dances at court became um, very popular because of, you know, slumming, but really, jumping around and laughing is totally fun. Hunting, of course, tennis, fencing tournaments, archery, even kind of a proto-track meet, just races, you know, chess and whist, which they called triumph, and there may or may not have been quite a bit of gambling on that last game. But bear baiting, believe it or not, Roman Colosseum-like as it sounds, was Elizabeth's favorite thing to watch. It's basically trained dogs harrying a chained bear to death. Sounds fun. And last but not least, plays and theater. 
Of course, those at court benefited from all the plays that were brought to Queen Elizabeth. Um, licenses were granted to some members of the aristocracy to keep control of those crazy wastrels and rogues by making companies that the aristocracy was responsible for. So Essex had a troop, Leicester, Worcester, etc., kind of to keep a lid on the behavior and the content so that no one got too crazy with political unrest on the on the stage. It was a great honor to be granted this responsibility. The first actual theater, which was called the Theater, see, they're so clever, they're so creative, uh, was built in 1576, which of course Elizabeth never set foot in because all the theater came to her door instead. Sorry, Shakespeare and love did not happen. And that, having finished with the wealthy of Elizabethan times, is all I have for today. Let me give you some places to go if you'd like to know a little more. A book called At Home with Bill Bryson, um, which talks about the history of every room in the house and how it got that way. And also a book by Jeffrey Simpson called Daily Life in Elizabethan England. There's a couple of videos that you should see. The Supersizers Go, Elizabethan, and The Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England, which honestly you could just listen to audio. The video really adds very little to the content. And that will do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back for our next regular episode, both of us, very soon. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at the History Chicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. The class system's nothing to do with class. It's all to do with cash. All to do with cash. The upper class that got the most cash. Conservatory in the back. Pedigree, Persian cat. Indoor swimming pool. Kids in private school. Monte Carlo twice a year. Then Scotland shooting deer. Nothing to do with class. All to do with cash. The middle class that got... A fair bit of brass Gnomes on the lawn A pond full of frog spawn Runs the aster in the town Always wears a worried frown Skis in margin France Learns a local folk dance Nothing to do with class All to do with cash The working class have got No spare cash Plastic seat on the bog Heinz 57 dog Works on the bins For all of his sins Goes to Blackpool for a treat Every other week None to do with class All to do with cash The unemployed class are a lot more crass Satellite dish and a couple of goldfish The odd cash only job with the extra few bob Gets held up every night and likes a good fight None to do with class All to do with cash The homeless class are the ones we all walk past in every town and city, more's a bloody pity. A blanket if they're looking, a charitable cup of tea. They moved on in the morning, but it could be you or me. Cause it's nothing to do with class. All to do with cash. The class system's nothing to do with class. It's all to do with cash. All to do with cash.